podcast. I'm your host, Oliver Taylor. And I'm Anita Vasudevan. And so today is a special podcast. Usually we like to ask our guests questions about their career and what path they took to arrive at family medicine. But today we're going to kind of forego those things and instead talk to our guest um, about a specific topic that he's interested in and that we are also very interested in. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Young. He received his medical degree from UT San Antonio, completed his residency in family medicine at John Peter Smith Hospital in Fort Worth, where he is now the Associate Program Director and Director of Research. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Young. Great to be here. Good. And just for our listeners, could you just do kind of a one-liner about yourself and who you are, maybe? Sure, yeah. So most of my career I've been at JPS in the family medicine department, and I teach residents, I take care of patients, I work inpatient, outpatient, do procedures, all the good family medicine stuff, but my other kind of passion is about sort of healthcare system issues and costs and outcomes and and those sorts of things. So Dr. Young, at UT Southwestern, you gave a lecture to rotating family medical students actually today about some of the problems in America's healthcare system. So for our listeners, could you give a summary of what some of those problems are? Well, so the, the big crushing fundamental problem is we have the most exorbitantly expensive healthcare system in the world and we have absolutely nothing to show for it. We spend roughly 18% of our economy on healthcare. The nearest competitor is going to be some of the wealthier Western European countries like Switzerland, Norway, those kinds of places. They might spend 12% of their GDP on healthcare. Uh, we have the worst life expectancy of all those countries. We have the worst infant mortality of all those countries. And even when you survey populations in those countries and ask them, are they happy with their healthcare system? We even rank last in that. So the politicians love to say we have the greatest healthcare system in the world. And by no measure is that even close to reality. Wow, that's bleak, bleak. yeah. <laughs> well, now that we've started on a high note. Yeah. Are there, is there anything that we do that, that is better than those countries? Um, I think for people with health insurance, we're probably the most convenient system in the country. Um, if you got good insurance, you can see a specialist quickly. You can get any procedure, any chemotherapy, any whatever done quickly and without a lot of delay. Uh, certainly, every healthcare system in the world wrings its hands about, you know, could things be better and they try things within their own systems and all that sort of a thing. And so certainly, you know, with metrics like, you know, once they decide to replace your hip, how long do you have to wait? Certainly, we have shorter waiting times in other countries, but really those are measures of convenience and you know maybe a few months difference of how much longer somebody had to wait. So in terms of a more, you know, across your whole life experience, does it really make a big difference? It really doesn't. Mm-hmm. Why is healthcare so expensive in the United States? So, yeah, <laughs> why, why I know is unpacking that? that is probably yeah. kind of complicated, <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, well um, so if, if your listeners would like to Google this later, I think there was a, a, an estimate that um, a guy named Don Berwick put out three or four years ago where they tried to take this kind of 50,000 foot view. So I won't get it exactly what he said, but I, and I, you know, I disagree with a little of what they said, but, but in big picture, it's probably, the categories are probably about right. So, um, uh, Uh, a lot of inefficiencies in the sense of unnecessary procedures and hospital days and stuff like that that happen here, unnecessary ER visits, that sort of thing. Um, uh, Our administrative costs to run these sort of multiple systems within the system, private insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, VA system, trying to administer all those as separate things um, adds greatly to the cost, especially on the private insurance side. Certainly, there are some cases of not enough care being provided for uh, subgroups, vulnerable populations, uh, people of color, that sort of thing, all the health care disparities, and the, the, certainly the bad health effects on um, you know, those populations fits in there. Um, but my other favorite article, if you want to go back, like famous articles in this sphere, 
was uh, there was a, a health economist at Princeton named Uwe Reinhardt, and he published a paper, I don't know, 10 or so years ago that the title was, It's the Prices Stupid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and basically pointing out that if you looked at us versus Western Europe with things like how often people go to the doctor and, and actually even some things like our knee replacement rate is that much different than the rest of the world, they probably overdo some knee replacements too. Uh, in some of the other countries, but it's the unit cost that is so much higher here. So this won't be exactly right, but just to give you a ballpark. So let's say here the the grand total cost for a knee replacement in the private sector is say 30 grand, something like that. In Europe, they're paying five or 10 grand. Total cost, hospital, doctor, device, everything, right? And so Anyway, that was his point. And actually, I think within the last year, you know, so he died about a year ago. And so someone else is like kind of a memorial to him, wrote an article, sort of a follow up on that and basically concluded it's still the price is stupid. Do we pay so much more because our doctors are getting paid more or our nurses are getting paid more? Or, or the insurance companies. Yeah, or where, like, who where is, is it? Yeah. I know over the past 20 years, at least from what I've been told and from what I've read, doctor's salaries and nurses' salaries have remained somewhat stable. I mean, depending on your specialty and all that. But on average, it's not like we've been, and when I say we, doctors have been making more money. I'm not a doctor yet. <laughs> um, disclaimer. Disclaimer. Fourth year. But, um... So, so where, where does that extra money go? So there are certainly pundits out there that think part of the problem is doctors are paid too much, and there's some data that support that. Um, since I mentioned his name, Uwe Reinhardt actually didn't think it was that big of a problem because his point was American engineers make more than English engineers, and American chemists make more than... So if you look at those sort of ratios particularly for primary care, that sort of cancels out a lot of that. Um, plus, you know, they don't have nearly the, the malpractice worry that we do. Uh, it's there. Actually, some studies, so it's maybe not as different as some of us would like to think, but, you know, there's that. And then the really the bigger one is essentially their medical schools are not free, but they're pretty close. So you do not have people in Europe coming out with these multi-hundred-thousand-dollar student loans that they have to pay off. So if you add up all that stuff, certainly for primary care, if you just look at their annual income, yeah, we make more than they do, right? But if you correct for these other things, it kind of evens out. Where the, the people that really make out like bandits here are all the ologists. So it's the, the orthopods, the radiologists, cardiologists, all those people. It's, it's like five or six times different of like what a neurosurgeon makes in Western Europe versus what a neurosurgeon makes in the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so do you think that that's really what's contributing to the extra costs or I guess are other things at play? Oh, it's all kinds of stuff. So uh-huh. the to- if you look at the total healthcare spend in the country, physician fees are something like 18, 19%, somewhere in there. So if you say, you know, a bunch of these doctors are overpaid, I don't know, you trim it down, I don't know, 3 to 5% maybe get away with something like that. So, you know, that's heading you in the right direction as a system, but mm-hmm. it's not, you know, that one even start to scratch the surface of, of all the other problems. So it's just, it's everywhere in the system. So, you know, hospitals are more expensive to run here. And frankly, no one's, to my knowledge, has really studied that in depth. Um, I can tell you that my, my, my observation, so I, I got to go to Britain um, a few years ago and followed one of their doctors in the clinic and one in the hospital. And I can tell you that um, on this ward of 22 people, there was only two nurses there. Okay, mm-hmm. and so imagine what an American nurse would say to have that kind of patient to nurse ratio. Now they are working hard, but on the other hand, they had a fraction of the documentation that our nurses do. And so, well, why is that? It's joint commission, it's culture, it's lawsuit threats. It's I mean, it's all these layers of things that just in my brief observation, 
they at least gave me something to better understand why the operating costs of a hospital in Britain, you know, per bed per day, is less than here. Their labor costs are lower. Why are their labor costs are lower? Their nurses are paid less, but they also have fewer nurses per patient. Well, how can they do that? Well, I, what I saw was they had a lot less paperwork. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's more time, you know, visiting with all their patients and helping them get discharged or whatever they had to do and not sitting at the computer, you know, clicking for four hours a day like, like our nurses have to do. Mm-hmm. Drugs is the other huge one, right? So all these horribly expensive biologics and chemotherapy drugs and all that sort of stuff. Basically, every other country in the world looks at the drug company and says, uh, yeah, that costs too much. We're not going to buy it. And Medicare, as an example, by law, is not allowed to consider costs in its coverage determinations. Now, they will do these little end-arounds and these stalls to try to forestall the costs. So, for example, when these LVADs came out, you know, left ventricular assist devices, and the device companies were trying to charge something like 200 grand for the device. It was some crazy number like that. No, no, it was like seven. Excuse me, 70 grand for the device, and the whole package with the hospital and the surgeons and all was like 200 grand. So Medicare said, "Okay, we'll approve you. You know, there's evidence that this thing helps. We'll approve it, and we'll pay you 65 grand." <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So clearly not you know paying near what they want to charge and they actually end up negotiating it out over the next few years and so now Medicare pays I don't know it's something like hundred thirty thousand hundred fifty thousand something like that for the for the whole package so a little less but but the other countries in the world especially Britain is most transparent of how they do this is just much more blunt about going here's our criteria here's what we're gonna pay for here's what we're not and if a drug company comes in there and says, you know, this is what we charge, then they go, no, we're not buying it, go away. And so what's that, what that's forced the drug companies to do, excuse me, is um, they'll come back and counteroffer. So they'll say, okay, let us charge this amount that's higher than you want, but every patient that doesn't have a good response to this drug will refund you the drug cost. Okay, so again, it's by, 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 by being willing to tell them, no, we're not going to buy your drug, it costs too much, and we don't care that, yeah, Mike could help a few of our people, we got a whole system to look after, right? Not just these few people who might be affected. It forces them to come back on our costs. And so right now, the, the horrible things that are happening in the U.S. with drug prices are like EpiPens. Right, six hundred bucks for a stupid EpiPen when they used to cost like you know forty or something. Right, insulin. You know how much they charge in, in the, for a vial of insulin in Germany? Thirty bucks. What? Here it's like three hundred. Wow. Okay, and again, it's it's how these big governments, or actually in Germany, it's more these collaborative things with the governments and the unions and the industries sort of you know collaborate to create these sort of healthcare systems that by my perception is just kind of by region so they they're it you know they they're in the you know economic lane which they're a, a monopsony right they they control all the, the purchasing and so it's a you know take it or leave it deal and so because they're willing to be hard negotiators and walk away from bad deals and other you know political pressures and stuff on the drug companies that's why they get these these drugs have been invented for you know almost a hundred years now <laughs> that we've had insulin in various forms. That's how they're able to do it is they actually fight harder to get the prices down. Is it just like the fact that I guess the United States is more of a capitalist society that's really makes it difficult to negotiate these prices or like what is it about American culture? Um, I think we're a bunch of spoiled brats. Okay. <laughs> You know, if you if you tell somebody you can't have what you want, they you know start screaming and stomping around, and politicians listen and people get what they want. It looks good on TV, mm-hmm. right? So in contrast, um, if you look at um, Australian newspapers and TV shows, Canadian, British, 
you find stories of people who are in sad situations that raise the question, should the system change? And the way that people react to it is completely different than what you see in America. So a great example of that is a few years ago, a young woman who was on the British equivalent of Survivor got cervical cancer. And, you know, apparently she was like a popular person on the show, and so it made national news and all that kind of stuff. Well, they discovered the cervical cancer when she was 25, and that is the age at which they start cervical cancer screening in Britain. Okay, and so, of course, the call went out, mm-hmm. we need to start screening at an earlier age. And this way, this woman would have lived. And she ended up dying by the time she was 27 or something like that, okay? Mm-hmm. So no, no miracle cure at the end. And so there are articles in Britain around this issue in the newspapers and the TV shows where they basically interviewed people in the healthcare system. Well, why don't we do it at an earlier age? And so they would answer... The system has limited resources. If we did this for everybody, it would cost this much money, and that means we couldn't do this and we couldn't do that, and only this tiny number of women might even potentially be affected every year. And so it's not a good use of our resources. And so they stuck to their guns, and the politicians supported them. Okay? Imagine that same story in America. You know, mm-hmm. what's going to happen, right? You get you know they'd be going all the talk shows and they go in front of congress and all oh, this is horrible how can we let this happen and by law medicare can't consider costs in its coverage determinations insurance companies practically speaking can't and so you get these single anecdotes that are very human and very sad but we live in a country where we want to basically live forever and we want someone else to pay for it in every other country in the world, there is more of a sense of there's lots of stuff that delivers a good country, a good society, good health. And the healthcare system is a big part of that, but so is education, so is the social safety net, so is all this other stuff. And so they say no one segment of this society gets everything at once. And every country, therefore, has different mechanisms of how they make those difficult decisions. We still live in this la-la land where we think, you know, prevention saves money, and if you cure somebody, there's all these savings that'll come down the road because now they can go back to work, or, you know, all these silly, inaccurate assumptions. And so what's happening is, how do we pay for it? Jobs are, don't pay as much as they could. Opportunity isn't what it should be. And basically, we have a trillion dollars of debt every year in our federal budget that's getting dumped on the backs of our young people. And that's the thing that just absolutely drives me bonkers. Compared to our country versus the other countries we've been talking about, what is their ratio between primary care to specialists versus to where it is here? Right. Um, Well, certainly as a general rule, just about every other developed country has more primary care as a percentage of the physician population than, than we do. Actually, the, this, this argument got a little um, chink in the armor a few months ago. A paper was published in JAMA or New England Journal um, that basically claimed to do this, um, you know, sort of 11 country comparison looking at, you know, you, you know knee replacement rates and ICU rates and all this kind of stuff, right? And they actually claimed that the primary care supply was really not that much different here than other places. And there, there's a really good editorial that came after that explained that they basically used the absolute highest estimates that exists for U.S. primary care, and it's how do you define primary care, right? So if you throw OBs in the mix, stuff like that, then yeah, you can artificially inflate it, but OBs aren't primary care, right? I mean, just because an obstetrician, you know, throws a Z-pack at a woman with a snotty nose, that is not primary care. Primary care is any symptom, any organ, any age, either sex, right? I mean, that's that's what it really is and and other cultural things you know comfort with uncertainty and 
you don't believe the best care happens when it's all aggressive all the time. I mean, there's other cultural differences between us and like OB-GYN that help make that distinction. So there are some definitional problems in terms of being super precise in answering that question. Um, when I was in Sweden uh, this past year, um, they're actually, they actually have a low rate compared to some other countries. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it was um, yeah, 20, in the 20s, I think, percent. And they have sort of figured out that's a problem, and they're actively now trying to grow family medicine. Britain realizes it's having an impending shortage. They're trying to figure out how to boost it up. They have these ethical debates of how much they let people from other countries who were trained in other parts of the world be licensed in Britain and they wrestle with the brain drain ethical problem like should we really allow these people from Ghana Nigeria places like that come to be GPs in Britain isn't that you know shouldn't they stay in their own country and help make their own country's health better they, they, they have these really nice I think reflective articles about you know discussions about what the right thing is so so if you look at so, okay, with all those caveats aside, sorry. <laughs> the, um, so, you know, Germany, France, Britain, you know, most of Scandinavia, blah, blah, blah. You're talking about realistically probably about 40 to 45% of the docs there function as primary care docs. In the U.S., it's probably around 25-ish percent. So usually when we do this podcast, we ask our guests, like, why, I guess, why more medical students aren't choosing primary care. But I think in this case, do you have an idea of why our medical school system is just so bad at encouraging (laughs) students to go into primary care? Like, what's happening? So to me, you know, I I can't remember exactly what all the C's were, but I mean, you'll see these models of, or try to definition what it So. You know, comprehensive, continuous, mm-hmm. I don't know, some other C's. <laughs> <laughs> so um, definitely general internal medicine is, general peds is, okay? Now they still have their own limits. I think they have cultural differences with family that help explain why the real driver of the better outcomes, lower costs is family medicine, not internal medicine, okay? But one of the problems in measuring this is internal medicine docs and i'm not even talking about the ones who do the residency and of course most of them do fellowships right it's not just southwestern that's nation wide it's 80 to 85 percent of everyone who does a medicine residency goes into a fellowship and for peds it's now over half of them okay and so so you so the medical schools are complete weasels about this all right they know that these people aren't gonna really do primary care, but they, they have to appease the politicians, and so this is the game they play, okay? Some of them even throw in general surgery in ER when they're talking about this stuff. You gotta, you gotta watch them, <laughs> okay? But, but the next problem is hospitalism, right? So now the majority of people who finish a general medicine residency and don't do a fellowship become hospitalists, okay? Mm-hmm. And certainly they have a role, you know, I think the best care is when your own doctor takes care of you in the hospital too, but financial and political forces keep making that hard, not impossible, but hard. So the, the real magic of primary care delivering the value is in the ambulatory setting, right? Someone is worried about something, they come see you in the clinic, don't go to the ER, don't go to urgent care, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of a thing. And that's where, with our judgment, we can make good, good judgment calls. So, yeah, some people are really sick and they need to go to the hospital, right? But most of them don't. And we can take care of things in a much more affordable, less aggressive outpatient side. That's where the savings come from. Mm-hmm. So, just to be clear about the savings, can you tell us what the data shows in terms of outcomes and costs with specialty care versus primary care. Or in other words, if a family doc moves into your neighborhood versus right. any of the ologists moves into your neighborhood, in a like population study, what happens to outcomes and what happens to costs? Sure. So, so if for people interested, the, the, the best literature summarizing all this stuff was written by a woman named Barbara Starfield and some of her um, compadres in the mid-2000s, so 2005, 6, 7, that kind of range. 
and they they summarize basically 30 years of literature on this and like in one of their meta-analyses found that there were 35 studies they identified, and of course they did some of them themselves, but not all of them, places with more family docs in the U.S. or GPs in Britain or wherever had better health outcomes, right? And then other studies find, and at a lower cost, okay? And by outcomes, I mean outcomes that people care about. Mortality rates, infant mortality rates, cancer death rates, stroke rates, not who got put on a beta blocker. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Who had a like flu shot? Big, big picture right. things. Right, those are yeah. process <laughs> measures, not mm-hmm. outcomes. Okay, and so anyway, thirty-five studies, twenty-eight found a positive relationship, seven were neutral. Not a single of those thirty-five studies found better outcomes with more ologists. Okay, mm-hmm. so you look at places with high perinatologist supply versus low, no difference in infant mortality. Places with lots of cardiologists, few cardiologists, no difference in cardiovascular outcomes. Okay, so that's the that's the proven disconnect at the sort of fifty thousand foot level of of just how ineffective it is to load up a bunch of ologists in an area and how impactful it is to have a bunch of family docs occupy an area. And then in terms of costs, were there a difference with the ologists? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, there's this famous study from 2004 done by some economists from Dartmouth, and they absolutely found that relationship for for Medicare patients. And then there's other studies with lots of other patient populations, the private insured world, that sort of a thing, that the cost per person per year comes down in places with higher family medicine supply. It's the opposite with the ologist supply. Great. So just for... So family medicine, you get more, outcomes improve, costs go down. Specialists, outcomes stay the same, costs go up. Or some studies find worse, actually, well, for, so for the overall sort yeah. of sense of it, yeah. Okay, so outcomes get, yeah. stay the same or yeah. get worse, yeah. costs go up. Yeah. So that's, that's yeah. the difference. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that you mentioned that kind of these improved outcomes are seen with family medicine physicians specifically and not internal medicine, even intern, even though internists do practice primary care in many settings. So what do you think it is about family medicine that sure. makes it better? Um, so let me be very, you know, full disclosure here. This is me speculating now because mm-hmm. this is a way understudied issue. Uh, a recent study started to chip away at this, and, and so are you all familiar with this concept of low-value care? Yeah. Okay. But so maybe just for this. Sure, sure, sure. So, so this is things, they're basically, you know, understood to be pretty useless, but people get in the habit of doing it. So, like, everybody gets a chest X-ray as a part of a pre-surgical workup. Um, what's another one? Um, you know, antibiotics for colds, you know, stuff like that, okay? Mm-hmm. So there's a recent study that found that, um, uh, that basically um, the, the percent of people providing, you know, this list of low-value care interventions, you know, there's more of that with the internists and the family docs, okay? So neither side had it perfect, but, but the internists were more likely to do that stuff, just as one, you know, data-driven answer to question. On a more subjective level, um, to me, the big driver is basically family medicine grew up outside of the medical center, right? I mean, we're treated like ugly redheaded stepchildren, <laughs> but we have to rebel against the mistreatment, okay? <laughs> so, so to me, it really did grow up its own unique culture of what's most important, what do you really need to worry about in taking care of a patient, and it's not about the zebra chase, all right? Mm-hmm. The, the pinnacle of being a great doctor is not discovering the one in a hundred thousand disease this patient might have, yeah. okay? It's, as we like to say, common things occur commonly, and it's a good job of taking care of common things in an evidence-based, resource-friendly way. And, um, you know, we go on zebra chases sometimes, but it's it reflects the the frequency of which zebra exists, right? And so we tend to work up things in stages. So you, so in the medical school environment, you are rewarded when you remember 58 causes of pancreatitis, 
That's real. And you. Yeah. That's real. There's a whole mnemonic. Test yeah. for everyone. But not only that, yeah, when you present, so for the first and second years of listening to this, when you present, you're expected to come up with a differential. And it's true, you are rewarded in terms of grades and evaluations and even just verbally like oh good job on that presentation yeah especially if you like bring in an article about something obscure that your patient might have that they probably don't have because it's very obscure but the fact that you thought about it yeah if you thought of something that (laughs) no one else thought of yeah Mm -hmm. yeah in family medicine we say that's stupid Mm -hmm. why in the world are you worried about this one in a zillion thing when someone just presented with something that looks like a duck Right? It flies like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims like a duck. We're going to call it a duck. (laughs) And not worry about the rare, you know, Nigerian cormorant that it looks kind of like a mallard or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, it's a whole different culture of what's important. I also think a lot of the internists are basically taught to be wimps. Right? I mean, it's well. And so, you'll hear internists talk like this. Well, you know, the patient had a you know bypass two years ago, no chest pain ever since. I think you're more likely to hear an internist go, well, no, they need to check in with cardiology. Just make sure everything's going okay. Well, you know, what are they going to do? Well, you know, you never know. So let's let's they need to see, right? That's the culture of a medical school that has to keep feeding the ologist clinical care to justify their salaries, right? Family medicine. There's programs in Waco and Tyler and corporate currency and stuff where there's not this big infrastructure you have to feed. They're taking care of a lot of, of the vulnerable patients that, that the, you know, the cardiologist and Tyler doesn't want to see the Medicaid patient. And so you just learn to take care of it yourself, right? And so it's just a whole different set of priorities where we deeply believe, especially to me, the most competent, confident family docs is the best care is delivered when we take care of everything we possibly can. Now, of course, rare stuff, I think somebody needs a procedure that, you know, I shouldn't be doing. Well, sure, go see the other doctor for that stuff, okay? But the bread and butter stuff that most people have, the best care is delivered when one person is doing as much as possible, and that is not the culture of the American Medical School where almost all internists are trained. So that, that to me, this is all just opinion, <laughs> but that's, that's, I think, an important driver of why the outcomes are different. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So maybe to summarize, so maybe the difference between family med and internal med is that in their residency training, internal medicine residents and internal medicine attendings have a much lower threshold to consult than family medicine do. And because they're consulting so much, internal medicine residents who leave just aren't comfortable treating those things and continue to consult for those things that family medicine residents were maybe trained to treat. I think it's true. Um, And just to be really concrete, I mean, there's some other stuff, right? So. So there is no requirement in the medicine residency regulations that they have to do any palliative care, hospice work, any of that. We have to do that. And and I think one of the other drivers is I think we're more comfortable with death. We're more a circle of life people. Someone has lots of disease and they've had a good long life. We have no problem. I mean, again, the really competent, competent family docs of, of not, you know, never forcing anything on the patient, but helping them get comfortable with the idea, it's okay to let go. And this whole language you use about being a fighter and stuff, it's, it's horrible when the corollary happens, right? So, you know, grandma's dying and the family, and you know, she's been through multiple rounds of radiation, chemo, she's beat up, she's ready to check out, and the family's coming and going, come on, grandma, you can fight this. You're, I've always been a fighter, and so she dies. What so means she's a loser? I mean, it's the horrible what we do to people who, who really should be getting love and support and a good, comfortable death. I think family docs, because of their training and their culture, are more comfortable helping guide people along to get to that point. Internists have no training in any musculoskeletal stuff other than traditional diseases like 
you know, osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and stuff like that. So, you know, what happens when you smash your finger in the door, carpal tunnel, all this overuse and injury stuff, they get no training in that. Of course, all the women's health stuff they mm -hmm. don't do. So not just, you know, prenatal care and deliveries, but vaginal bleeding, pelvic pain, contraception, they're taught none of that stuff. And then the other big thing is mental behavioral health, right? So they are, you know, obviously some of them will pick it up along the way, but in terms of real understanding of who they are and what they do, um, yeah, they'll diagnose some depressions and stuff. And, um, you know, some of them are probably, you know, pretty good at it. But um, in terms of a real requirement of their training, it's not there. And so uh, turns out most antidepressants in this country are at my family docs. Not internists, not psychiatrists, okay? And so right or wrong, there is a stigma in the population about seeing a psychiatrist, right? And so when they come to us, they kind of hide it, right? Well, gee, Miss Jones, what, what, what are you here to see Dr. Young for? Oh, I'm having my headaches, right? And then they see me, and of course they have headaches because they're depressed and their life isn't going well, and we kind of, you know, use several different treatment modalities to kind of help them get through that, and then the world doesn't look at you like, what's wrong with you? Why are you seeing this like, you know, shrink, right? So, so we kind of protect people from that, you know, right or wrong, it is a stigma. And so we can still work with people and it is absolutely part of our culture that we learn to diagnose and treat all flavors of mental and behavioral illnesses. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, it, I mean, I think that this is definitely the reason that we wanted to go into family medicine, but it really just looks at the patient as a more comprehensive picture and it kind of looks at them within the context of their community and like what stage they are at in their life, um, which I think is kind of difficult to get from other medical training. And then on your point about um, how they don't really get any, uh, or internists may not get very good musculoskeletal training, we talk about that all the time because we felt like in medical school there's like very little that we learned other than like I know we had some lectures from orthopedic surgeons, but we about didn't. Fractures. Yeah, about fractures, but like common like overuse injuries, things that you see in the family clinic all the time. Because I remember on my rotation, I just saw so much like shoulder pain and you know the things that you see all the time. Back like we pain. just don't learn about those yeah. things. Yeah. Right. So. Why Why do you think more medical students aren't choosing to go into family medicine? And I'll frame it with a story. I have a friend who recently was like, you know. I asked her what she wanted to do, and she explained, she's like, you know, I really like the outpatient setting, I really like to see adults, I like to see kids, I like to do things with women's health. Um, I think I'm thinking about doing med peds. And I was like, what? And I was like, well, have you ever thought of family? And she, I don't know, you could tell she just hadn't really ever thought of it, maybe because she hadn't ever really been Ex exposed to it but I have another friend who told me he's going into internal medicine now but at one point he's like you know I thought about family med I want to spend most of my time in the ambulatory care but I just don't know if family med does evidence-based medicine I don't know to me like I said I think it's a culture thing so, wow. so where, why is that where does that come from oh there's so many layers to that um, okay well no particular order okay so here let me talk out of both sides of my mouth there was actually a study recently where some people supposedly surveyed some uh, medical students. It wasn't here, it was another part of the country. And they, they kind of concluded that money wasn't the, the big driver, okay? And, and I actually think the way they asked the questions were bad. But on another level, BS. <laughs> Come on. Now, that's not the whole story, don't get me wrong, okay? Money in terms of how much they're getting paid when they leave, or money in terms of how much debt students have. No, no. Money in terms of what what you get paid when you it's get out. Salary, right? Okay. Yeah. okay. So uh, it's not it's not the whole story, but I think it's a big chunk of it. And I will tell you in my you know sort of sloppy scientist thing when I do the talks here for the students every month. There's a part in my talk where I pause and I say you know this previous survey group asked medical students why wouldn't you go into family medicine and 90% of the time the 
your colleagues save money, okay? So I'm sorry, that is a huge driver. Now there's more, right? So if you look at a more general sense of why people choose jobs, it's meaningfulness, fits my personality, all that kind of stuff. And definitely, you know, you got some, some medical student that always wanna be a surgeon, think surgery's cool, well, go be a surgeon, right? Um, but in terms of just the, how family docs are treated in American medical schools, I actually, they're, they're, besides the historical, historical bigotry against family medicine, because remember, we really grew up outside the medical school because we were treated like crap in the med school. And so that's where, you know, John Peter Smith, Waco, Tyler, Corpus, even just within Texas, you know, the programs that have reputations of training these confident doctors and stuff. I mean, that's why they're there. They got away from the medical school, okay? So, so as this culture developed, we started to get our own identity and, and it just didn't match. So there's that level of why. Okay, so we're just not here. We don't thrive here because people just think different here. But the bigger thing in terms of medical school politics is the coin of the realm in the medical school's research dollars. And then kind of 1A is, you know, philanthropy, you know, getting some rich old couple to donate 50 million bucks to build a new building, right? So family medicine has been completely set up to fail. Okay, so there is a National Institute of Health Institute for every body part there is, okay? There is a National Institute of Nursing and Social Work and Complementary Alternative Medicine. There is no National Institute of Family Medicine, Primary Care, General Care, Complex wow. Care, nothing, okay? So if you're a cardiologist or gastroenterologist or whatever and you want to be a professor and do research, all that stuff, there's this very clear career path. You, you learn a little bit about the research game, you apply to the Heart Association to get small grants, you get some data, then you take that data, you apply to the NIH for one of their small grants, which is still bigger than the Heart Association, you get a little more of a track record, and then you take that data to then say, okay, now I wanna do the big $5 million, you know, three-year randomized control trial. And of course, drug companies and they're all that makes that sort of a thing, right? We have none of that. So there's just there's just much more money out there to do research if you're a specialist, rather. Completely, than completely. And this is yeah. true. I was listening to a podcast, and it was a podcast that's done basically by general and internal docs who are all academic, but they will even say that if you're an internal med doc, it's a lot harder for you to get grants and therefore you publish less, which matters in terms of promotion and prestige and all that, right. compared to all the specialists, even within the internal medicine categories. Yeah. But you're saying it's even, that there's that problem, but the problem's even worse for family medicine. Huge. And it's even the kind of research questions we wanna ask, right? So, if, so on these NIH study committees, there's going to be some physicians, but there's going to be a lot of basic scientists, right? So some guy that, you know, studies rat cell membranes his whole career. And they are, they think the best research is highly controlled, narrow focused, right? And we're going, yeah, but we want to know what to do when someone has COPD and diabetes. Do you give them steroids or not, right? Mm -hmm. The NIH falls apart with that kind of question because which, you know, which body part do you apply to? You apply to, you know, whichever one, the Diabetes Institute, right? And to the PhD basic scientist sitting on that study committee, and they say, you're a bad researcher because you don't have this really focused research question you're asking. That's not my reality. My reality is complexity, nonlinear um, expressions of disease and social determinants, and it's all that stuff that looks nothing like what a PhD basic scientist researches, but that's the culture of the NIH. Yeah. And I think you even see it when you talk about different cultures, is I have never heard of anyone in any leadership um, in like the, we'll say the ACP, so the American College of Physicians, they're like the big general internal medicine, or any of the specialty like leaders and if anything, like, who hasn't, isn't at a big academic center doing big, big research. And then I recently learned that the president of the AAFP, which is the American 
Academy of Family Physicians works in Valdez, Alaska, right? Mm -hmm. Where he does everything and part of the year, you know, airplanes can't go in. So to me, in my mind, it just thought that, okay, so family medicine, their president is a guy who's obviously probably really, really good at taking care of patients and can do a lot of things, and that's what's valued, versus maybe these other things, it's, it seems to be the research. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's the coin of the realm in the medical school. Not only the direct funding they get from it, but then that's what also spurs some, you know, wealthy philanthropy or some old couple that, you know, mm -hmm. want to do something good with their money. It's just so much easier for the med school to sell them on, you know, give us 50 million bucks and we'll go try to cure Alzheimer's or whatever disease it is they're worried about. Family medicine, yeah, we take care of that and 2,000 other symptoms and diseases. So we're interested in the interactions, and it's it's a harder story to explain to, you know, someone who's worried about one disease. Mm -hmm. So you and you feel like that trickles down to med students, and maybe biases med students. Oh yeah, because that you you know you've got one month with us. Yeah. <laughs> in your four, four years, unless, yeah. <laughs> and you got forty seven unless you burn elective time, mm -hmm. you've got forty seven weeks with that culture right mm -hmm. so we are way outnumbered in terms of just being able to tell our story and let you feel what it's really like but then you know a lot of the medical school culture impacts you know these are the people that testify to congress these are the people that advise insurance companies right i mean it just filters across the entire system and it feeds on itself and yeah so there's layer upon layer of why you know, a young person's looking at a career, and it's, so if it's not so much about the money, it's about prestige or a sense of control. Like, I know everything about the retina or, you know, whatever little micro body part they're worried about, right? Um, that's not us, right? We, we have to be humble. We have to be able to go, you know what, I know a lot, but yeah, this one I'm not so sure about, so I'll either look it up or I'll send to some other doctor and let you know, see what they think, right? And that is just not sold to anybody. Medical students, American people is a valuable skill set and something that should be cherished. The other thing that I feel like I've noticed that kind of bothers me is that I feel like there's this perception that family docs are super useful in like middle of nowhere rural settings and then not really needed in urban settings. And as someone who wants to practice urban underserved medicine, it just seems like that's the key to driving costs down and to make it make the system just more patient-centered because then they don't need to go see 18 different doctors to control each of their medical conditions. And it that's just something that I've noticed that's like really um, bothered me, like I guess while training in, for medicine like in a big urban area. Well, so it turns out some of these observational studies looking at costs and outcomes find that that difference in doctor supply related to the total cost is more powerful in an urban area than a rural area. Wow. So you actually have some data to support you. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we really need it everywhere. Yes. That's what we need. It's everywhere. Well, but if I can say one more thing. So definitely the rural docs because there's nobody else out there to do it mm -hmm. so family medicine is the only specialty that distributes itself across the population at the same ratio of the general population right okay? um, whereas the other ones cluster in urban yeah. yeah 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 and even I did a study of rural Texas a few years ago and even some of the towns that had more interns they were basically there were there was a VA thing there or a jail so they were cover, they're working like a jail hospital. Is that they really weren't necessarily doing primary care either. But anyway, but yeah. So so the reason the rural people shine is because they're allowed to, mm -hmm. because they're not having to deal with this competition of other doctors, you know, referring to each other and, and all this mess that you get into in an urban area. And so for a student asking, what's it like to be a family doc? Well, yeah, if you go out with an aggressive, competent, confident rural doc, that's fabulous, all the stuff that they get to see and do because they're it. They're the only ones in town doing it. Or even a town 
like Athens, where you know a big cluster of our grads are. You know, there's an OB or two in town and an ENT, and just but still, these people have such a great working relationship with them that they still go to the OR. They still do a bunch of other cool stuff because of just the because they've been there so long, they've proven their worth, the community supports them, the hospital CEO gets it of how important they are. And so, so they're also, even though there's other doctors around, the ratios are different than an urban area, mm-hmm. but they still play nice with each other in the sandbox. Mm-hmm. So one question I had, because lately, I, I think the first one I heard about was NYU but other med schools maybe have started doing this where they eliminate debt mm-hmm. for their med students. And then, then the reason why they say they've eliminated this debt is that so more of their students go work in primary care. How much does uh, debt, based on the data... Uh, a lot less than most choice? people think. So basically, the, the cur- there is a relationship between debt and who goes into family but it's like, it's like an inverted U, but it's really not even U, it's more like a plate, okay? So the really high debt people are less likely, but also the really low debt people. And so I believe basically those are the doctor's kids, right? You know, mommy's a cardiologist, father's a neurosurgeon, and oh, the shame, you know, junior is only gonna be a family practitioner. You know, it's, yeah. it's that kind of a thing. You know, you grew up in Highland Park and there's no family docs within, you know, shouting distance. And so it, it's, it's more that, right? And, and the pe- so it's, it's rich kids that are less likely to do it. So the sweet spot for us is actually that middle range. So kind of average-ish debt is actually the highest percentage. But there's not that much difference across, like, the quintiles of debt. Wow. That's where the politicians keep getting it wrong. They keep mm-hmm. thinking these loan repayment programs are going to solve anything. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it'll make a little blip, but nowhere close to what it needs to be. And so, and, it, and it's, 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 it's hilarious to the point of being pathetic that they think that, you know, someone in the short time span of their early career when they're actively paying off the loan, like they're not going to look beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> in the next 35 years of being in practice, right? I mean, guess what? Medical students are smart. <laughs> and they are really good at delayed gratification. So they think about That's what true. will my life be in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So some little five-year loan repayment thing means nothing to them. So you've got to change reality on the ground. Mm-hmm. Of, of the respect and how we're paid and what people view our job to be. And yeah, so as a culture, both on the financial side and just the general culture of the country, yeah, we, you know, I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but we, we do have a long way to, to go to make the, the working life better for family docs to where the, the, the patients and the payers and everybody else really get it, what we do that's so valuable. Because right now they really have no clue. Awesome. Yeah. That's really awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Young. I think we talked about a lot of interesting topics, definitely supported by data that we don't always get yeah. get to talk about that. So that was awesome. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. Dr. Young is a family physician at John Peter Smith Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, we've been your hosts, Anita. And Oliver. Uh, And this is Family Med PO Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at UTSWFMIG. This has been your dose of family medicine. We'll see you.